You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Many lies have been told about this transformation, or maybe just a deep misunderstanding that we don't know how to do it, that it's impossible, that we'll have to stop driving, and so forth, or that it will bankrupt us. If you only include in your forecast the demand you can see, your forecast is always wrong because it excludes the demand you can't see. For March 8th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As the European Union and the United States continue to tighten up their respective climate policies, their divergent approaches are beginning to reveal some tensions. Whereas the EU has opted for a carrots-and-sticks approach in its policies, both offering incentives for green industry and taxing the carbon emissions produced by its domestic industries, the U.S. has opted for a carrots-only approach because it can never assemble a sufficient majority in Congress to impose carbon prices on its own industries. The recent passage of the $369 billion Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, in the U.S. offers one example of these tensions, as it caused European leaders to worry whether it would leave them at a competitive disadvantage in world trade. But another policy is now coming to the fore as a source of trade tension between the two regions, Europe's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM. First proposed in 2021, it is Europe's answer to the problem of carbon leakage, where non-EU suppliers, who don't have to pay for the carbon emissions embedded in their products, could undermine the EU's carbon taxing regime by exporting their products to the EU and gaining an unfair economic advantage. The CBAM aims to correct that issue and level the playing field by applying tariffs to certain imports to Europe such that they too have to pay for their carbon footprints. That all seems pretty straightforward on a conceptual level, but as we learned in the previous episode of this show, in our conversation in episode 192 about accounting for the carbon emissions of green hydrogen production, it can get pretty complicated very quickly to determine how much carbon emissions are embedded in a product in order to tax it accordingly. It's also hard to imagine how the different paths that the EU and U.S. are taking can be harmonized so that their climate policies are working in tandem instead of in tension. To help us think through this dilemma, I invited Noah Kaufman, an economist and research scholar at CEPA's Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, to join us on the show and share his perspectives on these questions. He has worked on energy and climate change policy in both the public and private sectors. Under President Biden, he served as senior economist with the Climate Policy Portfolio at the Council of Economic Advisors. And under President Obama, Noah served as the Deputy Associate Director of Energy and Climate Change at the White House Council on Environmental Quality. And among other things, he previously led projects on carbon pricing, the economic impacts of climate policies, and long-term decarbonization strategies at the World Resource Institute. So he has extensive experience with climate policy and carbon pricing, and brings a great deal of institutional knowledge and context to this discussion. Then in the news segment, we'll note a potential new trade tariff on Russia. We'll see how Europe is faring in its effort to ditch Russian fuels. We'll note the progress of renewables in Europe. We'll check the latest totals for global investment in the energy transition. And we'll take a peek at an impressive new heat pump project in Europe. And now, our conversation with Noah Kaufman, recorded February 6, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Noah, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you for inviting me on. This is a real bucket list item for me. (laughs) Awesome. 
So, along with three co-authors, you recently published a piece in The Conversation that discussed the risk of rising trade tensions between the U.S. and the European Union over their divergent approaches to climate action, and there are obviously some important implications for their respective energy transition efforts, which I thought we should discuss. Now, there are a few layers to this, which we'll get to in time here, but just at the highest level, the EU clearly felt threatened when the U.S. passed the $369 billion Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, last year. In fact, one European commissioner called the IRA an existential challenge to Europe. In response, the EU has put forward a plan, which I believe I have variously heard called the European Green Deal and the Green Deal Industrial Plan, which would offer funding to EU member states to invest in the development of their own green industries. And it seems that the details are still being worked out about all this, but apparently it'll be funded, partially at least, by 225 billion euros from the 800 billion euro recovery fund. And that fund is part of an EU economic stimulus package launched in 2020 to compensate for the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic and was aimed at producing a more resilient green and digital Europe, according to the EU. So from the standpoint of wishing for more action on climate, I mean, I get sort of the competitive trade tensions there, but all this money ready to be invested in energy transition solutions sounds great to me. So why is this a source of tension? Well, at a high level, it's a source of tension because countries are taking the energy transition seriously. Because I think before climate was a first tier issue, countries could talk about all the great things that they would do and the commitments they would make. Other countries would nod and smile and think it was adorable. But now the clean energy economy is increasingly seen as an actual real-life future. So we're seeing countries jockey for position to be leaders in that future, and there are inevitably zero-sum elements to it. So if there's a big pot of gold up for grabs, I think it's natural that there'll be some squabbling over it. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, one of the places where these tensions are becoming evident first is in the domestic content requirements. The IRA contains a lot of quote-unquote buy-American provisions, which automatically means that that money will not be buying anything made in Europe. Presumably, there is something equivalent in the EU deal. And this strikes me as a particularly difficult issue because there are benefits to be captured either way. Like, spending the IRA money on American-made products makes sense because it's a politically saleable idea to taxpayers and because it ultimately will help America build up its own industrial capacity and stay competitive globally. But on the other hand, it could be cheaper and faster to buy stuff made in China. So where do you fall on this issue? Yes, everyone has a green industrial policy these days. <laughs> I agree it's a difficult issue. But if you think about it from the perspective of a U.S. policymaker, we have the fossil fuel industry, the automobile industry. These are big sources of jobs and government revenues that provide public services in a lot of the country. And when we run our net zero scenarios, a lot of these industries go away. Not all of it by any means, but a lot of it. And just letting that happen and crossing our fingers that new industries will come in to replace them is not a viable strategy. And arguably, it's not a responsible strategy either, in part because we've seen this movie before. We saw China's emergence on the global scene over the last few decades and what our mostly free trade approach to that China shock has done to various parts of this country. That's not to say it's going to be easy or uncontroversial. I hear two types of arguments against these types of green industrial policies. The, the first, as you say, is that 
any constraint on the geographic location of clean energy is a barrier to the transition compared to just a geographically neutral policy. And the second is the old-fashioned economist's view that we should be much more humble about our ability to successfully engage in this kind of top-down planning for very uncertain futures. We might have wanted a strong domestic shipping industry here in the United States, but we couldn't make it happen. And instead, we ended up saddled with the Jones Act, which is a stupid policy that harms Americans. So I don't take the extreme versions of these critiques seriously. I just think it means we have to be smart about how we do this. And to me, it's much easier to justify targeted investments in key emerging industries than for example, stipulations of tax credits that make them dependent on where you produce the energy. My guess is that would cause less heartburn overseas also. But that's easy for me to say. My preferred policies would not have gotten 50 votes in the Senate last year. <laughs> well, after all, politics is the art of the possible. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, I get that. I think this question of trade competitiveness is an interesting one. I wonder how much it's cracked up to be. I mean, on the one hand, as you were just alluding to, the U.S. certainly had an aversion to creating any sort of industrial policy. I mean, other than supporting the fossil fuel industry for the longest time. And so now we now we actually have an industrial policy that's based on sort of these climate issues. Mm-hmm. But I've heard people say that they don't think the energy transition can work because so much of the world's solar panels and wind turbines are made in China. And I just I don't really get that. I don't necessarily buy that. I would absolutely agree that it's better for the U.S. and every other country to have a green industrial policy and to build their own domestic manufacturing capacity. That's going to be best for sort of everything in the long run. But is it really a problem if we continue to buy the cheapest modules from China? I don't think so. I agree with you that it's complicated, but I think you're right to focus on China. And my sense is that to some extent, these clean energy policies are just a symptom of a trend towards a much more adversarial relationship between the West and China in recent years. So Mm. if you go back to the industrial policies we were just discussing, countries are not simply trying to boost their own domestic industries. They're also trying to diversify their supply chains and avoid too much economic power in any country, but specifically in China. And again, I'm not enough of a China expert to evaluate the merits of that trend, but I do think it's inconvenient when you're trying to address a global challenge like climate change. Yeah. Well, I would agree with that. And then for that matter, if you were to take your view sort of another 20,000 feet up, if you will, and look at it from a geopolitical lens, you could see this also as sort of another instance of a kind of rising nationalism globally, couldn't you? It is, for sure. And in some ways, as you said, I think there are benefits in that that nationalism helped the United States pass the largest investment ever in climate last year. But when it comes to some of these geopolitical conflicts, I think the energy transition is collateral damage. Yeah. Okay. So another source of tension is in the form of just straight state subsidies. So one issue being hotly debated in the European Green Deal right now is that the EU believes that China subsidizes its industry at a level about twice that of Europe on an adjusted GDP basis, 
which the EU says distorts the market and gives China an edge in the global market, which seems believable since it's that very dynamic that made China the global leader in solar equipment production today, which in itself has been the subject of an international lawsuit over unfair trade practices and there was a lot of arguing over whether the U.S. should levy punitive tariffs on imported Chinese solar panels last year and so on. So any thoughts on that? And does the IRA level the playing field somewhat by subsidizing U.S. producers so they can better compete with the subsidized Chinese producers? Yeah, it does seem like every country is declaring the injustice of other countries' domestic support, while at the same time doing as much as they can get away with of that domestic support themselves. So it just tends to strike me as very hypocritical. And everyone can always point to something the other country did to instigate what they are doing. So I don't know. To be honest, I don't take these claims all that seriously. Okay. (laughs) Well, the biggest debate right now, in my view, is over the EU's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, which is tied to the EU's flagship climate policy, the Emissions Trading System, or ETS, sometimes called EU ETS. Now, we discussed the ETS at some length with our friend Mark Lewis back in episodes 76 and 149, so I don't think we need to spend too much time on that today. But just for the benefit of our listeners who may not have listened to those episodes, how would you briefly describe the ETS and its function today? It's a carbon price that covers about half of the emissions in the EU. And like any carbon price, it makes carbon-intensive products more expensive. That provides a technology-neutral incentive to switch to cleaner stuff or to consume less, and that should encourage some relatively cheap emissions reductions. Like you said, we could talk about the details of it for hours, but I guess just for the purpose of this conversation, I'll note a couple things. First, for many years, the EU ETS was kind of a joke. Carbon prices were close to zero, which basically means they were closer to having no climate policy than having a serious climate policy. But that's changed a lot in recent years. They've made a lot of revisions and strengthened the system. And it's the centerpiece of their plan to get to over 60% reductions below 2005 levels by 2030. Prices have gone up a lot in recent years. They've been around 100 euros a ton That is a non-trivial cost of compliance for certain companies. And that includes some sectors with internationally traded commodities that are very carbon intensive. And maybe that's a segue into talking about the CBAM. Yeah, indeed. So what is the relationship between the ETS and this new carbon border adjustment mechanism or CBAM? This is what's often called carbon leakage, where if only... European industries had to pay a carbon price, they are going to lose market share to some extent to imports from countries that have weaker regulations. Right, because those imports don't have to bear the cost, so they're cheaper. Right. And, you know, at worst, you could end up with even dirtier production than you had before the policy. Absolutely. It's not actually clear how big of an issue this is in reality. And we're never going to find out because no government is ever going to run that experiment. Yeah, it's a counterfactual. Right. And so to the extent that these industries are covered by a carbon price, the government is either going to exempt those industries entirely, which is not ideal. They're going to provide some compensation 
for them, which is what the EU has been doing to date, or they're going to try to apply the same regulation to imports and to foreign producers. And what the CBAM proposal is doing is basically saying, we want to phase out the compensation that we've been providing to our domestic industries and instead phase in this tariff that will apply to foreign producers as well. Okay. So the ultimate objective, I guess, of this is to make carbon-heavy imports more expensive and at the same time to stop subsidizing domestic production quite so much? Well, the ultimate objective is to equalize the carbon price paid across domestic and foreign producers. So the EU would say these are just two different ways of leveling the playing field for foreign trade. Before, we've been compensating the domestic producers. Now, we're charging the foreign producers, but either way, we have a level playing field. Gotcha. Okay. So the EU came to an agreement about the general outlines of the CBAM in late December. So this is pretty recent. Why don't you tell our listeners what they agreed to do? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Although I did not discover it until afterward, the day that we recorded this interview, Bloomberg reported that the U.S. is preparing to slap a 200% tariff on Russian-made aluminum. But the move isn't just a new type of sanction on Russia, as the one-year anniversary of its invasion of Ukraine approaches. It's in response to Moscow's dumping of its aluminum on the U.S. market, which harms American aluminum producers. Russia is the world's second-largest aluminum producer after China. Still, the move is part of an ongoing effort by the U.S. and the E.U. to undercut Russia as a major provider of commodities to the world, particularly since their bans on imported Russian oil, gas, and fuels were undercut by the rerouting of global trade to continue shipping the commodities to buyers like China and India. U.S. imports of aluminum from Russia have already dropped from around 10% of total U.S. aluminum imports to around 3%. 
The Aluminum Association, a U.S. trade group, said in a statement that, quote, the aluminum industry stands in support of any and all efforts deemed necessary by the U.S. government and its NATO allies to address Russia's invasion. This is a global security and humanitarian disaster that goes far beyond the interests of any single country, end quote. As of yet, President Joe Biden has not officially initiated the new tariff. Some within the administration worry about collateral damage to U.S. industries that use aluminum, like aerospace and automobiles. There is no indication yet that the EU is planning a similar move. Item 2. In her February 1st statement on the EU's new Green Deal industrial plan, EU President Ursula von der Leyen announced that less than a year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the EU has already, quote, completely got rid of our dependency on Russian fossil fuels. It went much faster than we expected. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.